Chasing Leviathan is a podcast about pursuing truth, one big question at a time through the discipline of listening. Truth is too big to tame. But if we pay close attention, we might get the chance to glimpse something truly magnificent. So please join me in this pursuit, one week at a time. Hello and welcome to Chasing Leviathan. I'm your host, PJ Weary, and I'm here today with Adam Hochschild. Uh, he teaches at the Graduate School of Journalism, the University of California, Berkeley. He's the author of 11 books, including King Leopold's Ghost, Fain in Our Hearts, Americans in the Spanish uh, Civil War, and his latest book, which we'll be talking about today, American Midnight, The Great War, A Violent Peace, and Democracy's Forgotten Crisis. Uh, Mr. Hochschild, wonderful to have you today. Good to be with uh, you, PJ. Uh, tell me a little bit why this book. What got you into interested in 1917 to 1921? Well, I love to write about history, and I love to find parts of history that seem to have some sort of echo or resonance for the present. Uh, this book was written uh, mostly during the Trump administration. And uh, I wanted to write about this time because it was really the Trumpiest time in American history before Trump. Uh, four years that were filled with politicians thundering against immigrants and refugees, practicing a crackdown on the left. If the word woke had been invented at that point, they would have been screaming about woke. Um, and all kinds of racial tensions. There just seemed to be a lot of stuff going on in those four years that echoed some of the same conflicts we have in America today. I, and that's really uh, interesting to me. You know, I, I see that your background's really journalism. Can you talk a little bit about that relationship you see between uh, history and journalism? Well, I these days mostly write history, but I talk about myself as practicing history without a license because I never went to graduate school. And my early experience was in journalism. I was a daily newspaper reporter for several years, then a magazine editor and writer for several years, or actually for about 10 years. And then I turned to mostly writing history, but I still put on my journalist's hat when I have a chance to meet somebody interesting, follow them around, write a profile for a magazine, or go somewhere interesting and report on what's going on. And I have done magazine reporting that's been published from five different continents. Uh, but uh, I love best of all, I think, digging into a piece of history. Uh, because if it's back a ways, you can at least have the illusion that you can understand the basics of what was going on. Something you can't always feel about today's world, which changes so rapidly. Uh I love that phrase, history without a license. Uh, what do you think history is? Or how do you think of it in your, in your mind when you attempt to do it? Well, I think it's trying to understand the people who came before us, who were our ancestors in a national sense, in an international sense. And I love to find parallels, as I said, to things going on today that were way back in time. Uh, for example, one book I did was about the anti-slavery movement in the British Empire, where 
nearly 250 years ago, these folks invented every basic tool of political campaigning that we use today. A logo for a political organization, um, a, uh, uh, you know, pamphleteering, uh, speech making on street corners and other places, the consumer boycott, uh, all kinds of techniques which we still use today. And it was a thrill to discover these being used in uh, 1880s and 1890s London. So I like to see those kinds of parallels. Uh, and you've said this a couple times. When you talk about parallels, uh, how do you find those? And what, uh, what makes a parallel kind of salient or important to you when you're, when you're looking through history? And you're like, that's something that we need for today. Well, for example, in the period that I wrote about in American Midnight, uh, roughly 100 years ago in this country, uh, one of the parallels I see is this. The United States has always had recurrent scares about immigrants. And today, of course, it's uh, folks on the right who profess to be deeply upset about an invasion coming across our southern border. It's people you know, coming into this country in large numbers from Latin America that they're worried about. Uh, 100, 110 years ago, uh, there was not much immigration from Latin America. What people were worried about then was immigration from Eastern and Southern Europe. In other words, Italians, Poles, and Jews. These were the people that demagogues railed against. And I think this country has always had a sort of politics where people whose ancestors have been here for two or three generations get upset about the newcomers and <laughs> un-American about them and that they're bringing something strange and alien and foreign uh, into this country. So I was interested to see how this anti-immigrant stuff played out a hundred years ago. And it um, didn't play out very well because it culminated. Uh, and I should just, just say, you know, it was so strong that four different candidates uh, leading figures running for both the Republican and Democratic nominations for president in the 1920 presidential elections campaigned on promises of mass deportations. Um, none of them happened to win, but uh, the ball was already rolling in Congress and the period culminated in 1924 with the very restrictive Immigration Act passed that year which almost entirely slammed the door on immigrants coming into this country for the next 41 years. That was the act that kept out uh, hundreds of thousands, possibly millions of refugees from the Holocaust who would have otherwise liked to come to the United States. Is that the, that act, is that the one written by Albert Johnson? That's right. And Albert Johnson is one of the characters uh, in my book whom I follow. I like to try to bring a piece of history alive by finding eight or ten people whose lives weave through it and interact with each other. And Albert Johnson, a very demagogic uh, congressman from Washington State, is one of those people who sort of winds through this, this story. And I think uh, what you're often trying to do, too, is to... Uh, show you, you pick people who represent certain movements so that people have that like personal interest and that's part of what makes your book so readable and let me let me say that it's uh immensely enjoyable to read your writing 
um, not a slam on other historians, some very academic historians, you know, <laughs> maybe people with a license who uh, I read them and I, I have a hard time not falling asleep. But uh, you Me do too. a great job Me of, <laughs> but you do a great job of uh, making it enjoyable, but also tying it to the the bigger movements of the of the day. Um, I think you know maybe the the first thing, and I think it's kind of what you start with. You know, you mentioned the wobblies at the beginning, um, and I love that you even mentioned like nobody knows why they were called the wobblies. Um, <laughs> But then you go on to talk about uh, Woodrow Wilson and the incredible tension um, in his presidency between this man who is in many ways seen as an icon for progressivism and is in thoroughly entrenched in some of the worst attitudes uh, and the most shameful things that we look back in our American history. Yeah, uh, I like to find people at the political extremes. Woodrow Wilson was president during that period. This book roughly spans the, his second term in office. The Wobblies, the industrial workers of the world, uh, was the country's most militant labor union uh, and the most colorful. They had the best music. Uh, they had wonderful songs. They designed the best posters. And they had a very sort of open-hearted uh, uh, approach to labor union organizing where everybody was welcome, men and women, black and white, immigrant and native born. And that was not true of most other labor unions. Were they effective as a union? Not wildly, but they were greatly feared uh, by the government. And in part of the political repression that, that uh, characterized this period, they were essentially crushed by the United States government in the fall of 1917 in this time of hysteria kicked off by uh, American entry into World War I in April of 1917 and heightened by, uh, in later months by the hysteria over the Russian Revolution and a fear that it might spread to the United States. The Wobblies were one of the chief victims. Uh, hundreds of thousands of them were rounded up and put on trial in several mass trials, more than a hundred in Chicago, which in a trial that was and remains the largest civilian criminal trial uh, in American history. Uh, by the time the trial ended after four months, there were only about 98 of them still on trial. Uh, they were charged with four counts, which you know multiply four times 98 and you have uh, nearly 400 separate verdicts that the jury supposedly has to render. The jury deliberated for less than an hour and found everybody guilty on all counts. And the judge passed out a total of 807 years of prison time. Yeah. You know, even as you mentioned uh, this time and kind of how you, you, you know, you started with the Wobblies and you also mentioned your own personal history, you know, going back with your parents to, uh, uh, I thought it was really interesting that your mother would have been uh, at least uh, loosely tied with the, the Wilsons. That's right. My right? mother's father, you know, my maternal grandfather was a professor at Princeton University and a lifelong friend of Woodrow Wilson. He'd actually been Wilson's professor in graduate school when Wilson went to graduate school at Johns Hopkins. And then Wilson himself was president of Princeton University for a decade. And my grandfather was a professor there. 
And when he was elected president in the 1912 election, my grandfather took his three daughters over to Wilson's house to congratulate him. So for my mother, he was a familiar figure on the streets of Princeton. My father had a quite different relationship to that period because he was the son of a Jewish immigrant from Germany. My mother was Anglo-Saxon. Uh, my father was the son of a Jewish immigrant from Germany, and they spoke German at home. But when the hysteria ticked off by the U.S. entering the war began, there was a ferocious attack on all things German. Uh, uh, some states banned speaking German in public or on the telephone. Uh, schools burned German books. There were literally dozens of bonfires of German books. Uh, you know, newspapers attacked German culture. So my grandfather and his family were terrified to speak German on the street. They had to do it just around the family dinner table. So from my two parents, I got sort of very different memories of that period. I would say so. Um, and one thing I appreciate, too, that you draw on, and it's just, I don't know why this is, and maybe this is just me personally, but uh, it seems like there's this huge gap around the like, not like the year 1900, where it's like you have the Civil War and then you have World War One, and they seem like two very distinct periods. But one of the things I really appreciate that you did is you tied not only those histories together, but you showed the motivations for some of the decisions that were made based in the Civil War, based in figures who had lived through. Um, uh, you know, the, you talk about the dismay they had watching um, President Jefferson, uh, is that right, uh, being marched down the streets of Atlanta. Jefferson Davis, you're thinking. Of Jefferson the, Davis, thank you. <laughs> of the Confederacy, yeah, who yes. was taken prisoner at the end of the war, yeah, yeah. No, those stresses were very much a part of this period that I wrote about in American Midnight. I think you have to look at the big picture in history, which was basically the Union won the Civil War in 1865. And then over the next 40 or 50 years, the Confederacy won the Civil War as the <laughs> South imposed very harsh Jim Crow laws, uh, imposed a regime of systematic lynching, where there was often one lynching a week uh, somewhere in the South in order to keep black people in what white Southerners felt was their place. Uh, this was very much a part of the United States in those years. One result of it was around 1910, the Great Migration started. Black Americans trying to flee the South to get away from that terror to find places where they had a better chance in life than in the highly segregated South. They began moving to the cities of the Midwest and the North and even the far West, California. And uh, that was something going on uh, during this period. But the period I, I zeroed in on in American Midnight was one of tremendous racial tension. One of the things that exacerbated that, several things exacerbated that. One was that Many unions would not take black members. So when these guys arrived in the North, coming from the South, desperately looking for work, the steelworkers union or whatever would not let them in. Uh, that meant that they could easily be recruited as strike breakers by companies trying to break strikes. So uh, that made use of existing racial tension 
and further exacerbated um, bad feelings between blacks and whites in this period. Then when World War I happened, uh, some four million American men were drafted into the armed forces. In uh, 1919, almost all four million of them were released from military service, came home to a country where there were very few jobs because the factories that had been making tanks and ships and guns and planes for the war, ammunition, were no longer doing so. So black veterans and white veterans were competing for scarce jobs. And in that year, 1919, we had some of the worst racial violence this country has ever seen, really the worst since the end of slavery. Uh, nobody knows the exact death toll. It's believed to be in the high hundreds. The reason we don't know it exactly is that the greatest part of the violence took place in a town called Elaine, Arkansas, where federal militia and local vigilantes uh, violently suppressed an attempt by black sharecroppers to organize a union. And there were hundreds of victims, but their bodies were simply tossed into the Mississippi River and floated downstream. And we don't know exactly how many there were. And I, I think that's, uh, I, I just want to dwell on the uh, weight of what you just said, right? Like, part of the value of what you're doing with these parallels is not that history repeats, but that it rhymes, that old, uh, that old proverb, um, and help us to not relive the mistakes of the past. Um, it's a very, uh, our past is unfortunately marred by several, not several, many stories like that. Um, as we talked about, you know, uh, kind of drawing together what you've talked about with racial tensions and even Woodrow Wilson, it's a little bit before your book, but um, I used to teach American history. And uh, one of the things I did was show uh, a good chunk of Birth of a Nation. Yeah, yeah. To uh, my students to help them understand. Uh, and I think it, it was, a, um, you know, as, as we talk about the value art has for culture making, we see the very first blockbuster and the first film shown at the White House by Woodrow Wilson, or at least to Woodrow Wilson, um, was about the, uh, the valor and bravery, uh, and I, I use air quotes there, uh, for the, of the Ku Klux Klan That's and right. rescuing the South. From, and so, um, and I think that even as we, we look at that, you know, you, you, you talk a little bit about Postmaster General Albert Burleson, um, and you've mentioned a little bit about propaganda and censoring. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that and about um, the mechanisms that were being put in place to, yeah, you talked about your, your own mother not knowing about a lot of this stuff because of the, the blanket that was being put down. No, this was a time of great censorship. And as I said, the, the two things that really kicked us off were the hysteria that accompanied American entry into the First World War, April 1917, and then some months later, the Russian Revolution and people's hysteria that that might spread to the United States. So how was this reflected? One way was in censorship. Albert Burleson, whom you mentioned, uh, was a very conservative Texas congressman who had been made postmaster general. 
And the chief instrument of repression during these years was a law called the Espionage Act, an amended version of which is still in effect. And that Espionage Act gave to the Postmaster General the power to declare a publication unmailable, which meant that uh, the many, many hundreds, if not thousands of publications that depended on the U.S. mail to reach their subscribers, he could say simply, no, you can't mail them. So weeklies, monthlies, journals of opinion, the great bulk of the country's socialist press, the great bulk of the country's foreign language press depended on the U.S. mail. Uh, Burleson loved being chief censor, and he used that power to essentially put some 75 newspapers and magazines out of business in these years. Even though this censorship provision was supposedly because of the war and the importance of, you know, not uh, uh, allowing military secrets and unpatriotic material in the newspapers, he happily continued censoring for two and a half years after the war ended, right up until the last day of the Wilson administration. So that was one way in which, uh, you know, dialogue, discussion of the important issues was suppressed. The government was terrified to let people who opposed the war, and there were many, speak out. Uh, another way it did so was simply sending them to jail. Uh, during those four years, 1917 and 1921, roughly a thousand Americans were sent to jail for a year or more and a much larger number for shorter periods of time, solely for things that they wrote or said. Uh, that's something that I think has never, had never happened before in our history on that scale, and happily, so far anyway, has not happened since then. Uh, but, uh, you know, these political prisoners, and I think you have to call them that, included all sorts of people. For example, another parallel today, you know, in... 2016, Donald Trump's followers chanted, lock her up, lock her up, lock her up about Hillary Clinton. Well, in 1918, Woodrow Wilson did lock up somebody who'd run against him for president. Eugene Debs, the uh, number of times the socialist candidate for president, who had won 6% of the popular vote in the 1912 election. He was sentenced to 10 years in prison. Uh, for speaking out against American participation in World War I. As it happened, the judge who sentenced him was the former law partner of William uh, Wilson's Secretary of War. And Debs was still in jail, such was the degree of repression in this period, he was still in jail in November of 1920, more than two years after the war ended, when he received 900,000 votes on the socialist ticket running for president from his jail cell in the Atlanta Federal Penitentiary. Just uh, to help uh, me understand, when you talk about those 75 newspapers and magazines, are there any uh, that stick out to you as especially important that were, that were shut down? I mean, obviously, like shutting down newspapers in general, not a good thing. But were there some that you're like, they were kind of crucial? Yeah, the, uh, I mean, there are a number of cases you could point to. Uh, one of the first newspapers to be shut down, if not the very first, it may have been actually the very first, was a newspaper, a socialist weekly published in Hallettsville, Texas, called The Rebel. Why did Postmaster General Burleson want to shut them down? Because this very paper 
had exposed uh, in the preceding several years, repeatedly had done articles about Burleson's abuse of laborers on land that he owned. He had tenant farmers uh, living on land that uh, uh, his wife had inherited. He evicted them and replaced them by Mexican-American people who, who would uh, uh, he could make a better deal with for sharecropping, better deal for his purpose. Then he pushed the Mexicans off and replaced them with convict labor hired from the Texas prison system. You know, guys working in striped uniforms and being whipped when they didn't uh, work hard enough. So this newspaper had exposed him and he shut it down as a result once he had the power to do so. Probably the most famous case of censorship uh, that he participated in was closing down a newspaper or a magazine called The Masses, which was a monthly uh, by far the liveliest general interest magazine in the country at that point. It was left-leaning, but not doctrinaire. It published many of the best writers of the day, the young Walter Lippmann, Edna St. Vincent Millay, uh, Sherwood Anderson, John Reed. It was very much a precursor of The New Yorker with uh, a mixture of fiction, reportage, poetry, and it pioneered the kind of cartoon for which the New Yorker later became famous, where you have one line of dialogue as the caption. Well, this magazine, The Masses, was very much opposed to American participation in the war, carried a lot of reporting to that effect. And, uh, you know, several months after the U.S. entered the war, Burleson shut it down. One of the cartoons that attracted his rage was one that showed the Liberty Bell crumbling. And so the magazine was in effect closed. Uh, August uh, 1917, the editors were put on trial. Uh, actually, there was a hung jury. They had to, there had to be a second trial. Uh, but uh, the writer, John Reed, was so eloquent that uh, he was able to convince the jury uh, not to convict them. So the editors of that publication never did go to jail, but the editors of a number of others did. We talked a little bit about like the shutting down, the closing off, uh, that censorship part. Can you talk to us a little bit about the propaganda machine, the the work that was done to, you know, we, we closed off the wrong opinions and we forced yeah. the right opinions? That was a big part of it. Uh, the U.S. maintained during the war the largest propaganda operation in its history. It was something called the Committee on Public Information. It was run by a former journalist named George Creel, uh, an enthusiastic supporter of Wilson, had an office just a few blocks from, from the White House. And they published books, they published magazines, they published an encyclopedia about the war, they provided uh, uh, newspapers with feature stories, which newspapers were usually glad to print because they weren't allowed to have embedded correspondence at the front lines. Uh, and this was the only war news they could get very often. Uh, they deployed speakers around the country, a core of people known informally as the four-minute men. They were all men. Uh, there were some 70,000 of them. And uh, they had pre-prepared speeches of four minutes each. And they would give them at uh, Rotary Clubs, Kiwanis Clubs, 
and above all in movie theaters where in the days of silent films, there was a four-minute gap when the projectionist changed the reels of a film. And the audience was accustomed to seeing advertisements projected on the screen during that time. But instead, now there would be a, a little notice saying you're about to hear from a representative of the U.S. government. And then one of these four-minute men would give a little canned speech about the bravery of our boys at the front and the need to support them and that kind of thing. Uh, another thing that's, you know, the American machine, both censoring and propaganda, was very strong. Uh, one of the ones that I found really interesting, um, and I, I was familiar with the Zimmerman telegram. I loved your description of the British gleefully intercepting and redirecting, right? <laughs> so excited to receive that telegram. But uh, can you talk a little bit about the British and their own, you know, uh, and they weren't the only ones, but the the foreign government's involvement in American politics through propaganda? Well, the British were the ones who really went to town on this score. Um, Britain from the very beginning, uh, and French, had, had been terribly eager to get the United States to join them in fighting Germany. Uh, because especially by early 1917 or so, the war was a stalemate. Both sides lost enormous numbers of men. By early 1917, there had been probably 5 million military deaths and a much larger number of people wounded, often very seriously. And uh, the British mounted a huge propaganda operation directed at the United States. One of the first things they did, the moment the war broke out, there was a British ship waiting at the right spot in the in English Channel. It lowered a grapple, pulled up all five telegraph lines, undersea telegraph lines, wires, that connected Germany with the Americas and cut them all. So Germany had no way of communicating with the United States by telegraph. Britain did. And telegraph was a tremendously important way of communication at that point. Uh, then the British mounted a very skillful propaganda operation directed at the Americans where they sent people to tour the country. They would uh, manufacture leaflets and things supposedly authored by Catholic priests in Britain, which would be mailed to Catholic priests in the United States and other religious groups to their counterparts. Uh, they, they pushed propaganda into American newspapers. They tightly censored what American journalists in Europe, some of them uh, at or near the front with British troops, uh, could write to make sure all of these uh, stories were very favorable to Britain. And the British had a very good espionage operation, which was able to catch and decode the Zimmerman telegram, which you mentioned, which was a telegram uh, from the German foreign minister, Arthur Zimmerman, to his ambassador in Mexico, uh, telling him to go to talk to the Mexican government and tell them that if Mexico entered the war on the German side, they would be rewarded with their lost territory in Arizona and New Mexico, which, of course, the U.S. had, had taken in a war of some decades previously. And of course, Americans were outraged at the thought that uh, some of their country might be parceled off and given to Mexico, uh, at least that that's what the Germans had in mind. So the Germans, as soon as they decoded this, 
immediately passed it uh, to the United States and it created a tremendous ruckus. And it was really one of the things that helped spur the U.S. to enter the war. Uh, even as you talk about parallels, my day job is as a digital marketer. And one of the things I found really interesting was how the British would push the most extreme German propaganda uh, to the American people in order to inflame them. Right. Yeah. And I, I see that I see that with digital marketing. They have what they call the horseshoe effect is that the people who need to hear. Do you, are you familiar with the horseshoe effect? No. No. So you have the you have the the intended audience. Uh, that the algorithm sends, you know, news to, or it sends like different pieces of content. But then it, the people who are most likely to be angry, who are like anti that, the people who don't care are kind of in the middle, but the two ends of the horseshoe, the people who are most angry are also very likely to receive that because they know that they'll be interested in reading it. And it just, you know, as you talk about those parallels, um, a good reminder that, uh, Yes, there are people who want you to see stuff, right? Like, uh, they're like, I want you to see my content. But there's also people like, no, I want you to see their content because I want to make you angry, right? And uh, it is a common tactic. And that's what the Brits did very effectively because there was no shortage of strident German nationalists who believed Germany had a destiny to dominate Europe and make its culture the leading one in the world and so on. And they would pick some of the most extreme of these folks and translate their material and be sure it was published in the U.S. and English to get Americans riled up and, and more enthusiastic about joining the war on the British side. I, um, and I think it's closely related to this discussion of propaganda and censorship. Uh, you mentioned your own special interest and even your own personal experience with surveillance. Uh, can you talk about the... Uh, about surveillance and your own, um, perhaps even historical method in what you learn from surveillance notes. Sure. Well, my experience was this, with surveillance is this. In the late 1960s and early 70s, uh, I was very active in the movement against the Vietnam War. And then when we had uh, a lot of revulsion in this country against some of the things that the CIA had done overseas and so on. In the mid-70s, they passed the Freedom of Information Act, which meant that you could get uh, the reports on yourself that were compiled by federal intelligence agencies, FBI, CIA, military intelligence, and so on. Uh, you know, with if you wrote to the government and uh, asked for this stuff and so on, they were compelled to send it to you, and they, they theoretically still are. They send it with names of undercover informants blotted out uh, and so on, so it doesn't compromise any of your sources. But when I finally got my files under the Freedom of Information Act, this was like late 1970s, uh, they had more than 100 pages on me. And I was very small potatoes in the anti-war movement. I was by no means you know, a leader. I was <laughs> way down at the bottom. So, you know, people who were really big cheeses in that movement, you know, I'm sure had thousands of pages. And it was fascinating stuff because it reveals, uh, intelligence files often reveal as much about the watcher as about the watched. It also reveals how they get things garbled and get things wrong. I mean, I'll give you one example. Uh, my wife and I had briefly been civil rights workers in Mississippi in 1964, 
And when we got married the following year, we asked people to send, in lieu of sending us wedding presents, to send contributions to one of the civil rights organizations we'd worked for. And uh, in the FBI report, this got garbled into gave his wedding presents to goodwill. So, uh, <laughs> you know, these, these folks are not always the most alert. But that whole experience, seeing the files they had on me, made me realize that as a historian, intelligence records are a rich, rich source to use. And in three or four books, I've been able to use them because after 50 or 100 years, usually everything is declassified and you can see, uh, you know, without names being blotted out, what people would really say. And in this book, uh, you know, when I was following people like uh, Emma Goldman, the anarchist leader, all-around firebrand, firebrand, or Eugene Debs, you know, whom, whom we already talked about, I wanted to see what the Bureau of Investigation, the predecessor of the FBI, uh, was saying about them as they snooped on these folks. The most fascinating thing I discovered was this. Uh, the Bureau of Investigation, predecessor of the FBI, they just added federal to the name uh, some years later, uh, was very concerned about the situation in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, big industrial city, center for a lot of war industry and so on. And they sent somebody to infiltrate a wobbly branch that was being formed there. And this guy, Leo Wendell was his name, was so good at this job that he managed to get himself elected recording and financial secretary of the Pittsburgh Wobbly Branch. And he served there for, for three or four years. He joined the Socialist Party. He was active in the city's radical library. He found himself leading marches and demonstrations, you know, demanding that the U.S. leave the war and give rights to workers and so on. And the whole time, he was sending three or four reports a week to the Bureau of Investigation. Uh, periodically, they tried to maintain his credibility among his fellow wobblies and socialists by arresting him, often very conspicuously, in one case when he was giving a speech to 50 people and protesting and screaming he was carried off to jail. Uh, strangely, his uh, fellow radicals didn't seem to question why, after this happened, he always managed to surface again three or four days later and never went to prison for a longer stretch. Uh, but his reports were fascinating to me. And you always wonder, what's motivating somebody like that? I wish he was still around so I could ask him, but he died in 1945. Uh, can't ask him. But his report says nothing in them that shows an excess of patriotism. There's nothing that shows, you know, disgust or disdain for the people he's spying on. And I suspect like many undercover people throughout history, for him, the big thrill was deception. Just the fact that I'm somebody that these people around me don't know who I am. The the thrill of being smarter in many ways. Like there, there's an inherent sense of superiority. It's like, oh, if you only knew. Yeah, that's uh, right. That's right. Yeah. Uh, 
Can you talk a little bit about that transition? And this was fascinating to me because I mean, one of the really cool things about history is uh, the opening up of uh, questions that I didn't even have. And one was the transition from these big private agencies like the Pinkertons to a to these government-run associations. What motivated that and what uh, did those changes um, create? What, 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 what became different about uh, surveillance after that? Well, up until the First World War, undercover operations in the United States were almost entirely a private thing uh, because the years preceding the war were very bitter years in terms of labor relations. For decades, that had been something very violent. Dozens of people killed every year, just, for instance, in 1913-14 alone. More than 70 people, some of them women and children, were killed in fighting between striking miners in Colorado and company detectives and uh, state militia. So private detectives was a huge industry. The three largest detective agencies together employed 135,000 people, smaller agencies still more, and corporations hired them to break strikes, to infiltrate labor unions being formed and report back to the employers on what was happening, and so on. Uh, come the war, once the U.S. entered the war, the government was very worried about anti-war agitation because a lot of Americans felt the U.S. had no business entering the First World War. There was much more feeling of that sort on the left, but it was not limited to that. I think for many Americans, there was a sense that this was a quarrel between people in Europe. You know, we have no dog in that fight and, uh, and, and shouldn't be involved. Uh, the government was very worried about this and very worried that it was going to interfere with the nationwide draft, with production of arms and ammunition for the war and so forth. So... Some of the private detectives, like this guy, Leo Wendell, we were just talking about, uh, left the agencies they were working for and came to work for the government. Uh, some for the Bureau of Inve Investigation and some for military intelligence because the U.S. Army had a huge intelligence operation spying on American citizens. Uh, some thousand people, military and civilian, working you know, snooping on dissidents, potential dissidents here at home. Uh, so this era sort of saw the birth of this tremendous, uh, you know, government snooping on us, something which has not gone away and which, you know, I discovered in the 1960s uh, and uh, which, of course, still goes on today as we learn as the January 6th invaders have gone on trial, that there were FBI informants in some of their organizations. <laughs> I, there's part of it just wants to be really sarcastic, like, what? Are government spying on us right now? I can't believe it. No. Um, <laughs> Although I must say today, I'm much more worried about the amount of information about us that corporations have, because they know... Everything we click on on the internet, everything we buy on Amazon and other websites, all that is going into their computers somewhere. And I think they know much more about us right now than Amazon knows much more about each of us than the U.S. government does. Yeah, 
Yeah, uh, I mean, uh, I've mentioned it on this podcast before, but I think the classic example of that was uh, Target getting so good at its demographics that it predicted um, when women were pregnant. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. <laughs> Amazing thing. And, yeah. yeah, which is uh, literally uh, they got in trouble with a dad who, you know, I, I, I've mentioned this before, but uh, he, they knew that his daughter, his 16 year old daughter was pregnant before he did, which he was not very, he's not very pleased with. Um, I think for good reason. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a, I think that's a fair point. Um, y- you give kind of uh, some heroes, you know, during this time. It wasn't all just demagogues and um, uh, snoopish superior uh, Pinkertons. Uh, you know, you mentioned uh, uh, it, Lewis Post and Emma Goldman. Do you want to talk a little bit about those people you see as kind of fighting? You know, Eugene Debs. These people who are fighting. Uh, for the rights of the common man, if that maybe is that, or is that how you'd word that? Well, uh, they were fighting for all kinds of things: for the rights of ordinary people, for the rights of free speech, uh, for the rights of people to oppose a war to speak out against it. Eugene Debs, we already talked about a little bit. Uh, he was a, a very saintly man who managed to charm even his enemies. Once on a speaking tour. He dropped in to have lunch with uh, a sheriff who was in charge of a jail where he spent six months some years before. Managed to charm everybody. Uh, and his big, big thing during this period was he felt the United States should not be drawn into this terrible war in Europe. And for saying that, he went to prison. Uh, Emma Goldman, same thing, you know, a tremendously feisty, lively, outspoken person who, the moment the war began, began organizing against the draft. And she was sent to prison for two years because of that and then deported from the country after that. Uh, Lewis Post, whom you mentioned, is a, a fascinating figure and in some ways, I think, the least known hero of the ones that I talk about in American Midnight. And here's what he did. Uh, Lewis Post was Assistant Secretary of Labor. And in uh, 1919, sort of by accident, he became Acting Secretary of Labor because the Secretary of Labor was on sick leave. The man who normally would have taken his place had just resigned to uh, run for Congress. Post was the third ranking person there. And so he became Acting Secretary of Labor. This was a Tremendously important position for this reason. Uh, At that time, A. Mitchell Palmer, who was Wilson's attorney general, was planning a run for president in 1920. He wanted to get the 1920 Democratic nomination. And he wanted to run on the fact that he was going to supervise mass deportations. And he wanted to build a track record of deporting thousands of people. So you could say, folks, this is what I'm already done and I'm going to do more of it. Uh, he rounded up uh, some 10,000 people in a series of arrests known as the Palmer Raids. Uh, several thousand of them were found to be deportable because they were not U.S. citizens. People were kind of casual about getting naturalized as U.S. citizens in those days. The country had seemed to be welcoming immigrants. Uh, There was a lot of formalities to go through. And if you didn't speak English well or something, people often skipped it. However, no parallels there. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. However, the 
deportations, the Justice Department had the power to arrest people, and they did arrest these things, roughly 10,000 people. But deportations had to be approved by the Immigration Bureau, which fell under the Department of Labor. So Louis F. Post, acting Secretary of Labor, refused to sign off on the great bulk of these deportations. He found legal problems with the arrest warrants. He was a uh, a well-trained lawyer and a very skillful bureaucrat. Uh, he found that people had been uh, denied the right to representation by an attorney and all sorts of other things. And he foiled this plan uh, of Palmer and of Palmer's assistant, who was the very young, at that time 25 years old, J. Edgar Hoover, just beginning his long, long career in the federal government. Uh, so Post was a great hero uh, to whom several thousand people owe the chance to remain in this country. Uh, Palmer and Hoover were furious at what he did. Uh, they orchestrated a campaign against him. They got the American Legion to demand that he be fired. They got Congress to investigate him. But Post was very skillful and managed to hold on to his job. Yeah, even as we talk about parallels here, I mean, some of the negative ones uh, is in many ways why you wrote this book. What are some of the strategies that were used by uh, Eugene Debs, by uh, Emma Goldman, by Lewis Post that you see uh, would be useful for us today when dealing with unlawful uh, kind of uh, these obstructions of civil liberties? I wish I could say they had a magic secret, which we really have to adopt, and we would uh, vanquish a lot of the craziness that's on all sides of us right now. Uh, it's not so simple, though. Uh, but I do think we can learn several things from this period. One is the importance of organized labor, uh, you know, which is something that has been weakened in the U.S. Uh, over the last couple of decades. We have a smaller percentage of our private workforce unionized than almost any other major industrial country. And I think it shows in the weakness of the social safety net that we have. Uh, and I take heart from the fact that at places like Starbucks and Amazon and so on that haven't been organized before, there are the beginnings of labor organizing now. And I think we can all be uh, encouraged by that. I also think all of these folks, uh, Emma Goldman, Debs, Lewis Post, and many others, simply remind us of the importance of free speech, the importance of being able to dissent when your government does something crazy. Um, you know, we can still argue about whether or not it was a good thing for the U.S. to join the First World War. I tend to side with those who feel it wasn't. Uh, but there are other decisions since then the government has made, such as the invasion of Iraq 20 years ago, which turned out to be catastrophic. And I'm glad we were able to speak out against it at the time, even though we, we, we couldn't stop it. It's a 400 plus page book. Uh, you know, uh, won several awards. Uh, and I, I'm looking at uh, if uh, what did you have to cut from the book? that you wish you could have put in? Uh, what's on the cutting room floor? Uh, actually, 
I find it fairly easy to cut things uh, because I'm acutely aware of what is going to leave a reader bored or uh, impatient or whatever. Uh, as a reader myself, I notice that I very seldom finish a uh, nonfiction book and wish that it had been 100 pages longer. Uh, that never happens. But I very often read a book and I felt, well, why was maybe 100 pages too long? I didn't need all those extra characters. So I try to keep track very carefully of how many characters my reader is going to keep in, be able to keep in mind and uh, eliminate, eliminate the extra ones. There were certainly many other colorful people during this period that I could have said more about. Uh, but actually, my previous book, the one I wrote just before this, a book called Rebel Cinderella, which is a biography of a remarkable woman named Rose Pastor Stokes, uh, was about some of those people. And I felt, well, I covered them in that book, so I don't need to cover them so thoroughly uh, in this book. So I have no regrets about stuff that got left out. And I hope what's in there is uh, just enough and not too much. But readers will have to make that judgment. But a great ad for uh, Rebel Cinderella, right? It's like, well, if you feel like something's left out, then buy my other book. No, I love that. Um, uh, how would you, um, one of the things that's interesting to me during this time period, uh, and it isn't the topic of your book, so this isn't, please don't take this as a criticism, but some of the, the, uh, some of the other topics that were big were things like eugenics, uh, things like uh, the Spanish flu, how do you see those uh, in terms of the context of the time and playing into these uh, obstructions of civil liberties? Yeah. Well, eugenics, you're right, was a big thing. And I do talk about it a little bit in this book. And it was very much used by the anti-immigration crusaders who had so-called scientific proof, you know, having to do with measurements of skulls and so on that... Uh, uh, Jews were depleting the racial stock in the United States and we shouldn't let any more in. So they definitely were enthusiasts for the eugenics movement. The Spanish flu did happen during this period. Uh, and I think it's a little bit hard to say, did it really change things and make stuff happen that wouldn't have happened otherwise, other than killing a, a huge a number of people. It didn't kill as many people as COVID had, but it killed a much higher proportion of the population of the country. It killed some 675,000 Americans at a time when we had only about 100 million people. So that was approaching 1% of the population. I think it added to the eeriness of things because the worst wave of the flu hit in the fall of 1918, when the United States was still at war. And because of censorship, uh, nothing about it could appear in the newspapers. For example, the worst hit city was Philadelphia. And there was one day in the fall of, uh, in October, I believe, of 1918, when Philadelphia had more than 700 excess deaths. That means more than 700 more people than would have normally died in the city that day. Uh, and that's generally looked at as sort of the worst day and the worst period of the, the worst wave of this thing in the United States. 
I looked at the uh, front page of the Philadelphia Inquirer for the next morning. Not a word about any of this. So here were people living in this city and many other American cities where they knew something terrible was going on because they could see mortuary wagons waiting outside the morgue that was overflowing. They could hear, you know, uh, pleas in the newspapers and so on from uh, hospitals, you know, for extra bed sheets, uh, pleas to uh, funeral homes for extra coffins. They knew something terrible was going on. They knew people who were dying or people who were sick and dying in their own families. But there was nothing about it in the press. And among the very few mentions in the press uh, were uh, statements from government officials poo-pooing this, saying it's really nothing serious, and then sometimes suggesting, well, this was actually something deliberately spread by Germans. And it's believed that people from the German submarine came ashore at New Orleans and spread this virus. Complete nonsense. But of course, neither side in the First World War, and the Germans were suffering from this just as badly as we were, wanted to leave any clues for their enemies about just what a terrible toll it was taking. Right. And that is the kind of interesting thing in terms of censorship is those moments where it's like, you don't want to give away war secrets, and it is amazing what you can draw from the press, but at what cost? Um, uh, Mr. Hochschild, uh, been wonderful to have you on today. If there's one thing you could leave with our uh, audience, if there's one takeaway from today that you would want them to uh, think about and meditate on through the rest of the week, what would it be? Uh, PJ, I think it's this. It's we need to remember always that uh, democracy, uh, civil liberties is something fragile. Uh, in this period, uh, a little over 100 years ago, we saw how rapidly it disappeared uh, and was substituted for by repression, censorship, imprisonment, political imprisonment, and so on, when there was the stress of a war. We saw how close we came on January 6th, uh, 2021. You know, if that day had unfolded a little bit differently, uh, it could have been a huge blow at, you know, democratic elections in this country. So we need to be on guard because there will be other stresses that will come in the future, whether from ambitious demagogues, whether from the pressures of climate change, which are already uh, creating climate refugees, both in this hemisphere uh, and in the other. Uh, uh, you know, we're going to be facing stresses in the future. We have to value the Constitution, the democratic safeguards, the Bill of Rights, and remember how fragile they are. Uh, tremendous way to summarize what is so important about what you shared today. Uh, Mr. Hochschild, thank you so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure. Okay, thank you, PJ. 